This is an ABC podcast. Today we hear how outback mining town Mount Isa is struggling to deal with public drunkenness. It's not just for people who are going about their business day to day and they're suddenly um, around people who are very drunk, but it's also safety for the individual who is drunk. So if you're very intoxicated, and I say this as a mother as well, you want the police to pick up someone who is so drunk that there's a chance they could walk out in front of a vehicle. And a rash of new bars and restaurants open in Launceston in Tasmania as visitors flock for its world-class food and wine. Launceston's starting to really boom and people are excited to be out and hitting the streets and trying somewhere new. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. Emergency authorities in New South Wales have warned flood-affected residents more heavy rain is due to arrive on Wednesday. Multiple evacuation orders were issued yesterday across Sydney's Hawkesbury region and parts of the state's central west and riverina regions. Adding to the challenge is two-thirds of the state's regional dams are spilling ahead of the forecast rain. Reporter Molly Gorman is in Forbes in the state's central west. Molly, an evacuation warning was in place for parts of Forbes yesterday. What sort of in- impact have the floodwaters had on the town overnight? Well, this is the thing, isn't it, Sinead? Like, we've just been seeing so much floodwater in this part of the world for so long now, like, you know, the best part of two months for some people. Um, the thing with Forbes is Forbes Township itself doesn't really tend to flood much these days. They've got a lot of really great um, mitigation works in play. And I think, uh, you know, they do, the authorities continue to talk about Forbes as a, as a bit of a concern. But at this stage, the township itself is not too bad. They are saying we're looking, looking likely to reach maybe a near major flood in the town from tomorrow. The river's currently sitting around 9.4 metres and a, a major flood like the one we saw last year would be up around probably that sort of 10.5 to 10.8 metre mark. Um, but upstream and downstream of Forbes at the moment, there is some pretty significant flooding going on at places like Nanamai upstream and downstream at Uabalong. So there's still so much water around and you really don't have to drive far in this region to find a closed road or a causeway that's got water on or even just you know wet paddocks it's just it's really quite astonishing in some ways to consider how badly in drought this region was only a couple of years ago Mm. and now you know just massive swathes thousands of hectares are now underwater it's like the complete flip you went out to a school today tell us about how they're going yeah, so we went out to the Bajerabong Public School today. So Bajerabong's about half an hour west of Forbes normally and a, and a you know, nice tar road. Um, but it's also, like much of this region, it's all very flat and it just it gets it floods fairly easily out there. So at the moment, um, the teachers, the three teachers to the school of 39 students have been hitching a ride with the rural fire service. A volunteer drives them out there each morning on a truck and then someone else drives them back into town each afternoon because the roads are just full falling apart, as you can imagine, all this rain, all this water is just, you know, the ones that are open are so rough that you wouldn't want anything less than a pretty serious four drive to get through. Um, that's what I had to get out there and mm. I had to take the long way round. Yeah. And what about um, the HSC exams? They start on Wednesday. Are they expecting them to be disrupted at all for students? 
So the the Forbeshire Council in particular is sort of trying to get the word out and they've offered up some accommodation to anyone who's going to be affected by that to make sure they can, you know, you can get into town if that's going to affect your your ability to sit your exams. Um, we know, we spoke to a family today who last year had their, their son, had that had happened to him, he got stuck sort of trying to get to HSE exams because of flooding last year. Um, so it's certainly something that can happen, but at the moment um, they think it's, you know, they've put the call out, they're aware of it and hopefully it means that no one will be too disrupted though of course you know I I know when I did my HSE being Mm. moved out of my home would be the last thing I'd want to have to deal with so um, pretty pretty tough situation for those poor kids. Molly Gorman and Forbes thanks for chatting to Australia Wide. You're welcome. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Launceston in Tasmania's north has struggled for years to attract people into the city centre. But that could be all about to change. The CBD is being revitalised with 15 new businesses opening up over the last few months. It ends a long period of uncertainty in the retail and hospitality sector for Tasmania, with many business owners saying they're excited to open late and trade on weekends. Jessica Moran has this story. On any given Saturday night, people are out and about in Launceston in Tasmania's north. They're enjoying the world-class food and drink. Keen to socialise after the pandemic, many locals are hitting the town. As soon as everyone else reopened, um, I think the whole of Launceston were were out and everyone was really um, supportive and really keen to to, um, support um, hospitality businesses. That's Nathan Cairns. He owns a wine bar in Launceston city centre. He says things are so busy, he's taken the bold step of expanding. In a week's time, he'll open his second venue, a cocktail bar just a few doors down. And he's not alone. 15 new retail and hospitality businesses, mainly bars and restaurants, have opened in Launceston. And that's just since July. No, I think that um, after COVID, I think everybody was sort of ready for a change and it was a good opportunity for people to sort of have a go after nobody had been really doing anything for a long time. So it's really exciting to be part of that group. That's Kiara Dundas, the new co-owner of Launceston's only dumpling and cocktail bar. Her good friend Josh Brown is running it with her. They opened last week and so far, so good. I was visiting the mainland um, in Queensland and I went into a dumpling bar and I thought it was really cool and um, something that was missing from Launceston. So, yeah, that's sort of where the idea was born and then um, I noticed that this space had been available for quite a number of years and had been vacant and uh, thought it would suit it perfectly. Great location and a cool little space, just needed a bit of imagination. Yeah. And how much of a gap, I suppose, is getting food in Lonnie after 8pm? Yeah, there's not too many places available um, other than pizza or... Um, Bain Ray food. Um, So yeah, it's really exciting to be able to provide something different and it's been well received so far. There's also been a new brewery open. The team behind it are also keen to offer late night dinner options and trade on Sundays. That's two current gaps in the market. Here's the venue manager, Oliver Oxley. It's a new space. We're not closed any day other than just staying boxing day and I think anyone who's been to one system knows sometimes Sunday and Monday is hard to find anywhere that's open. And will you be serving dinner past 8pm? Uh, yes, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, definitely. Yeah. Maddie Bigelar from Launceston Central City says encouraging more weekend trading is a tough one, but it could be changing soon. 
Coffee and food on a Sunday has always been really hard and it's always been this huge conversation of the, you know, the chicken or the egg, which comes first, whether, you know, they stay open later, but do the people come, do the people want to come and then there's nowhere open. So it's great that that narrative is really shifting now and businesses have more confidence to be open on that Sunday. They know people are around, Launceston's starting to really boom and people are excited to be out and hitting the streets and trying somewhere new. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, Launceston had struggled to attract people into the city. Despite many Australians wanting to holiday in Tasmania during the pandemic, Launceston still struggled. A lack of retail stores, poor parking options and limited food outlets in the mall were just some of the many reasons. Many commercial properties also have a high vacancy rate. And shop fronts? Well, they sat empty for months. But a change could soon be on the horizon. Last year, Launceston was recognised internationally as one of the world's best cities for food, successfully winning a bid to be designated a UNESCO Creative City of Gastronomy. It's one of just 49 around the world. Recognised for its growing food culture and paddock-to-plate trend, it now sits alongside cities like Chengdu in China, famous for Sichuan cuisine, Alba in Italy, known for its white truffles and vineyards, and Bergen in Norway, world-renowned for its sustainable seafood. Here's Maddie Bigelar again, who says businesses are capitalising on that reputation. It's great that the community has leaned into the city of gastronomy being awarded to us and we're not letting it, you know, we're not letting it just die off. We're actually embracing it. And I think looking at the types of businesses that have opened in that time, majority of those are hospitality. In fact, like, you know, 90% of those. And I think that... It has, to, it has to speak on the city of gastronomy. The Launceston Chamber of Commerce says vacancy rates in the city are dropping and there's an air of post-pandemic confidence within the business sector. Will Cassidy is the Chamber's president. Launceston is looking really promising at the moment. Vacancy rates keep dropping and we've got some really exciting uh, businesses moving into the CBD. Full shops and shops that are busy mean a more vibrant city uh, and are more promising for other businesses that want to come along. And I think it's a really great uh, outlook for, for the city centre. It's an exciting time for Tasmania's north. Thanks to Jessica Moran for that story from Launceston. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. Submissions at an inquiry in Mount Isa in Queensland resoundingly agreed that public drunkenness and related issues is at the worst level the city has ever seen. The inquiry into decriminalising public intoxication and begging offences is being held across the state. Julia Andre has the story. Mount Isa is home to a wealth of mining, where personal incomes are well above average. But beneath the resource-rich facade lies an insidious social problem that community leaders say is the worst they've seen in more than 20 years. The Leichhardt River meanders through the city, lined with parks and walking paths used by locals and tourists alike. But the open space is littered with drained cask wine bladders and broken glass. Mount Isa City Council spends $35,000 each time they clean up the riverbed, a sum Mayor Danielle Slade says she'd much rather spend on struggling community sporting clubs. At a state inquiry looking into decriminalising public intoxication in Mount Isa last week, business owners detailed how they've been left to pick up the pieces. 
Car dealership principal Lee Pullman told the inquiry the situation is the worst he's seen it in the 25 years he's been in business in Mount Isa. He's spent over $250,000 in the past three years on damages and vandalism to his business related to public drunkenness and youth crime. Mayor Danielle Slade says her main concern is public safety. It's not just for people who are going about their business day to day and they're suddenly um, around people who are very drunk, but it's also safety for the individual who is drunk. So if you're very intoxicated... And I say this as a mother as well. You want the police to pick up someone who is so drunk that there's a chance they could walk out in front of a vehicle. We're seeing some big numbers in Mount Isa at the moment of people intoxicated and, and, and during you know, business hours. Unlike other states and territories, public drunkenness is still outlawed in Queensland. The state government inquiry has received support from human rights advocates and social service groups who want to see a health and welfare response model instead. But in the northwest, community leaders like traditional owner William Blackley, a community engagement officer with the Northwest Queensland Indigenous Catholic Social Services, have raised concerns about abolishing the law. The people currently who are affected by these laws, mainly Indigenous people, probably aren't really concerned about whether they're in place, whether they're going to be fined or not. So I think another approach needs to be, be taken, more about rehabilitation and finding out who the people actually are that are publicly intoxicated and then finding out exactly what services we can provide for these people to perhaps break that cycle of intoxication. I think more work needs to be done in providing rehabilitation centres in our region. Groundwork needs to be done to find out exactly who people are that are living in our riverbed and uh, constantly Uh, in public uh, being intoxicated. Over 400 kilometres north of Mount Isa, in the remote Indigenous community of Doomagy, there are limited support services for residents struggling with alcohol abuse issues. Gungalita Garua and Wanyi woman, Cynthia O'Loughlin, works as a services coordinator in Doomagy. She says the current approach is not working. When you live in community, you're always trying to look at ways to assist your people, you know. Mm. and can help them to overcome their life issues, trauma, mm. that they um, obviously drowning their sorrows in alcohol with that. So um, if there was some way to reach them, well, that, that way could be through educating people and, you know, sitting down and yarning with them one-on-one. The inquiry is due to submit a report on its findings by October the 31st. Julia Andre with that story from Mount Isa in Queensland. ABC Australia Wide. Country people can't be discriminated against, not in Tumut. They were homesick, you know, poor little lumps. A flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought is a drought. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. A critical shortage of rentals through regional WA has been an ongoing headache for businesses and industry looking to expand their operations. So when lithium giant Albemarle proposed a 500-person workers' village on the outskirts of the small seaside town of Binghamup, the company probably expected it to be welcomed with open arms. The workers wouldn't impact the town as they would be at work or at the village and locals would be hired for the various roles needed to operate the accommodation. But the community of about 1,000 people is staunchly opposed. Sam Bold met them as hundreds gathered to protest the development. 
Bidding up road is really the main way in or out of the small coastal town of the same name in Western Australia's southwest. It's a long straight road with a speed limit of 90 clicks an hour. But on Sunday, traffic was reduced to a crawl when around 200 locals dressed in red quietly marched down the road. Spokesperson of the group, Ross Sharp, says the reason you can't hear any chants is part of their strategy. We've had some very good advice up front and they basically said, look, emotion's not going to win it. We've got to be detailed, so we've focused on detail. Uh, we've had very good legal advice, very good planning advice. They're fighting a proposal by US company Albemarle to build a village that would house 500 workers, which they need to expand their nearby lithium refinery. It would feature 128 villas, a commercial kitchen and a kitted-out recreation centre. A spokesperson for the company says it's designed to have minimal impact on the town's environment and community. Standing on the back of a ute after addressing the crowd, Mr Sharp said he isn't convinced. At the end of the day, uh, the community is frustrated with this process, how so much of it, the planning and the environmental side of it, can be so wrong, yet it's still got to this sort of extent. And people want to have their say ultimately and uh, say no to it. Environmental concerns are a major plank of the group's case. It sits on uh, an incredibly valuable water aquifer that's used by the market gardeners in this area and it's, it's no place to have an on-site effluent disposal system that's into the ground. Uh, significant potential risk. Albemarle says the sewage will be emptied by two trucks every day and then taken to a treatment facility. The Shire of Harvey is also against the proposal, calling it contrary to the principles of orderly and proper planning. Shire President Paul Gillett says it's no mystery how councillors will vote at an upcoming meeting on Tuesday. And that's basically just to consider it, but also um, to, you know, to refuse the application for a development application for this, this going forward. But the decision whether the accommodation goes ahead or not lies not with local government, but with the state government. This is because of the size of the development and the $73 million price tag. Back at the protest and Mr Sharp says he understands the need for more workers' housing in the regions. I really do get that. So across the state, that's an issue. But I think a smarter opportunity here would be to have um, maybe divide the, the number of people up into three and put it on residential zoned land and join into the communities. Um, I've been disappointed that Albemarle have said they don't want their workers to interact with the community. I, I just don't get that. Do you sort of reject the NIMBY tag as well, like just against development for development's sake? Right, if I was a NIMBY, I'd be down at every second function. No, far from it. We've made it very clear from day dot. You know, it's about the, the transient workers' accommodation. I don't think it's NIMBYism. I mean, you only have to look at what we laid out and certainly what's laid out in our submission and you go, how, how can this be approved? The state government's joint development panel will make its final decision later this month. Thanks to Sam Bold for that story. And finally, we're going to head to Albany in WA, where the community has pulled together to learn more about an endangered species of whale, the southern right whale. Every week, local pilots volunteer to fly a researcher over the coastline, counting the whales along the way. But feelings between the town and the migrating giants haven't always been so friendly. Emily Smith has this story. Whales have always commanded attention in Albany. For decades, they brought money and jobs. After two whales have been taken, the carcasses are inflated with air and set adrift to be picked up on the way home. 
It wasn't until 1978 that the local whaling station followed the rest of the country and closed. Today, a passionate group of locals want to write a new history with the mammals. Their whale spotting is all in the name of research and conservation. So I'd like to believe that the more whales that are coming here, the more people will see them and be able to appreciate them and be able to research them as well. Uh, and then hopefully we'll know more about it. Katie Funai had never seen a whale until she visited from Germany in 2018. It was the first time I saw a whale and I completely fell in love. Um, and so I decided to, yeah, Change, change my life and move to Australia and do marine biology. But her favourite, the southern right whale, remains on the Australian government's endangered list. They are called the right whales uh, because they are were uh, the right whale to hunt. Southern right whales are, are reproducing much slower than uh, most other whale species. On a biological basis, it takes a long time for them to recover and then because they were of so low numbers, um, yeah, it's just, it's a slow process. But as she was doing her Masters in Biological Science at the University of Western Australia, she realised there was more to learn. The annual migration of southern rights that come to the state's south coast from Antarctica each year to mate and give birth was very much understudied. She teamed up with fellow researcher Max Fabry to try and fill that knowledge gap, hopeful it could help with conservation. It really feels like it's our responsibility to make sure that when they're here in this vulnerable stage of calving, birthing, nursing and mating, that they are not disturbed and that they are looked after. So I was always, you know, I suppose in awe of how big they are and how majestic they are and how they travel these huge distances. But I, my knowledge level was, you know, limited until I met the researchers and they educated me more. David and Lisa Marie Ellett first met Katie and Max when they wanted to discuss a rare white whale they had photographed from their plane. They saw an opportunity to help and the Little White Whale Project was born, a not-for-profit organisation to help in the protection and recovery of the species and further the understanding of southern right whales. When I first came up with the idea with Katie to, to get a group of pilots to fly her along to do the survey she just looked at me like I had two heads and she's like who's going to pay for that and I said well we're going to ask them to pay for it Katie and she's like yeah right. (laughs) (laughs) They've now got 13 pilots on board who spent about $35,000 of their own money taking Katie on survey flights last year. So each week um, the flight time with the two planes is about five hours so um, yeah, it's somewhere around $2,000, $2,500 every, every week that the pilots are contributing. Thanks to the pilots, Katie is now undertaking the first weekly aerial survey of southern right whales in this area. Most of her weekends between late May and October begin at the Albany airport. So basically we're taking the plane up once a week, or the planes, um, once a week uh, to survey an area of about 450 kilometres of coastline from Albany to the Fitzgerald National Park. Oh, there's one here. Yep. Can we do a circle around that one? The whole time she's busy recording data. Then in the end I, I have a, a count, a final count of the week and that I can compare across weeks to basically see how do the numbers change. You must get sick of this coastline. 
ever. When she's not in the sky, she's spotting the same whales from the ground with Max. Oh, tail slap. Again, so powerful. It's a cuff. He has special permits for flying near the mammals. You've got, uh, you've got the environmental data and I'll set up the drone? Yep. Sounds good. With a drone, we can get in uh, a bit closer with uh, similarly low impact and understand who they are. We can really try and put together the story of an individual whale over time. The pilots and volunteers love learning more about the whales, but they're also keen to see the region begin a new chapter with the animals. One of the things that really motivated me is Albany's known as, you know, one of the places that had the last whaling station in Australia and it's a big tourist destination for that. People go out and visit the whaling station. And this was also an opportunity for us to uh, be a part of the next piece of history. I think full circle is the best way to describe it, is that um, seeing as everyone's always been so involved with whales in this region, in one matter or another, people refer to Southern Right Whale as their whales, and it, it feels a bit like the home of the whale down here, it really does. It's a pretty good way to describe it, full circle. Max Farbry ending that report about the Little White Whale Project. And if you want to watch this story, you can watch it on um, ABC iView. Just check out um, Sunday's Landline. You can see Emily Smith's full report there. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. You can podcast the show where you want to, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. I'm Sinead Mangan. Have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.